0: Well, if you're new this morning, I would like to welcome you. Uh, you're, you're so welcome here. We're glad to have you here with us worshiping this morning. Um, we've been studying uh, through the Gospel of Matthew. We study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the entire book. And it's our desire to let every bit of God's Word, you know, fashion our hearts, our minds, our soul, and our strength. And to shape every area of our lives into that which is pleasing to the Lord as we study his word. To put the section of scripture we're looking at uh, this morning into context, Jesus has just rejected the hypocritical demand of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They had come to Jesus demanding that He, he would give them another sign right, to prove that he is indeed who he claims to be, and that's the Messiah. But they didn't want just any old sign, right? They demanded a sign from heaven, something that only could be attributed to God, as if, you know, making the lame walk, or uh, giving sight to the blind, or casting out demons from those that are demon-possessed, or cleansing the leper or raising the dead was not proof enough of who he was. You know, as if anyone other than the Messiah could do any of those things. You know, it wasn't good enough for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They wanted something more, and they wanted that something more from heaven. And if you look in Matthew uh, 16 verse four, just one verse above where we started to read, Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he's referring to his resurrection from the dead after he would lay down his life for the sins of the world there on the cross. That would be the sign that he would give, give them. And it's at this point that Jesus, he leaves the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He gets into a boat with his disciples. He leaves this side of the Sea of Galilee. He crosses over to that side of the Sea of Galilee. And Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus crossed over to Bethsaida, and that's a city near Capernaum. And so in verse 5, Matthew 16, verse 5, We read now, when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. When they reached the other side of the Sea of Galilee, you know, one of the disciples, maybe, you know, two of them, uh, perhaps, you know, they realized, you know, someone has forgotten to take lunch for that day. Soon, you know, they're all involved in this discussion, you know, that someone had forgotten to bring bread. Somebody had a responsibility to go to the market, to get lunch for the day, but they had forgotten to do so. And Mark's gospel tells us that they had some bread, but it was a single loaf. It was just one loaf. You know, in those days, a loaf, it's not like, you know, Wonder Bread where, you know, you sliced up and 600 slices, whatever it is, I don't know, but uh, it was more like a a pita bread. You know, it wasn't enough for everybody, not enough for the entire day. So as the disciples become aware of this, they're engaged in this discussion of who failed to uh, provide bread for the day, whose responsibility it was. And Jesus interrupts them and says, verse six, take take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it's because we have taken no bread. Uh, Because they were talking about bread and leaven is, you know, used to make bread. It's a component of bread. They just naturally assumed that Jesus was rebuking them for failing to bring bread for the day. In verse eight, Jesus said, Being aware of it, he said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves? Because you have brought no bread. Do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I'm not speaking to you concerning bread? Jesus realizes the discussion that they're having and he chides them a little bit. You know, he gives them a little bit of a hard time, but in a very sanctified way, Jesus basically says to them, why would you think I was rebuking you for forgetting to bring bread? In light of the fact that I have, even recently, taken a small amount of bread and fishes and multiplied them and fed the masses, fed the multitudes. It was something that Jesus had not only done once, he's done it twice. And they were present for it. How is it, he says in verse 11, do you not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus declares to the disciples that he's not speaking of leaven in a literal sense. He's speaking figuratively. He was warning them to beware of the doctrine or the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in Mark's account of this story, uh, there's a third warning that Jesus gives the disciples. And that is to beware of the leaven of Herod. Right? It's a reference to the leaven of the Herodians. So Jesus' word to us associated with his warnings in regards to the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, he uses words like take heed, beware. And he didn't use those kinds of words you know, super frequently. So when he uses them, they should grab our attention. We should take heed and we should beware. There's something about these three groups that are, in, uh, are a danger. They pose a danger to the child of God. They pose a danger to the church. They're a danger to what Jesus wants an individual Christian to be. They're a danger to what he wants his church to be. Now, leaven is something fairly interesting. I don't know. I think weird things. I think it's interesting. We know leaven as yeast, right? It spreads uh, quickly, and it spreads unseen. And it thoroughly corrupts the entire lump of dough. And Jesus is saying, the doctrine or the teaching of these three groups, if they're introduced into the life of a Christian or into the church, into the body of Christ... It won't be uh, long before it permeates that entire life of the individual or that church, corrupting it and turning it into something other than what Jesus wants for his people or what he wants for his church. Well, this raises then some questions for us. What are the doctrines? What are the teachings? What are the beliefs of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Herodians. Well, we've seen, uh, you know, the doctrine of uh, the Pharisees in recent past. It it was legalism. A legalist is a person that adds to the word of God. They're not content to read the Bible, to read the command which God um, gave written in his word, and simply obey them, right? The legalist will look at those commands found in God's word and make them even more demanding than they actually are intended to be. They'll make them even more difficult to follow than what God intended them to be. They'll add their own man-made ideas to them. They'll add their own man-made traditions in order to make God's word even stricter, more rigid, Uh, than God ever intended it to be. The legalist is a person that feels deep down in the core of his being that a person must be suffering in their relationship with God or else they're not doing it right. And that's how they see it. They look at God's word and say, if God wants us to do X, then 3X has to be a whole lot better, right? And that's how they contort God's word to make it something it's not. Something beyond what God wanted it to be. They twist God's word to come up with all these man made ideas, these man made laws that a person, if they really love God the way they do, or if they're really serious about God the way they are, then they'll do these things too. Examples of legalisms from the time of Jesus that even uh, goes on today, uh, taking the word of God beyond what it actually declares. An example would be teaching that a Christian can't eat meat. You know, it's kind of uh, the thing that goes way beyond the word of God, right? Or the teaching that certain diets are more spiritual than other diets. Now listen, certain diets are more healthy than others, but certain diets do not make us more spiritual than others. Right? Paul wrote about this when he wrote to Timothy, speaking of people who were commanding others to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Certain diets can be more healthy than others, but not more spiritual. And the Bible teaches uh, that as Christians, it's not to be, become a point of contention for us. It's not something that we can contend over. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, Romans 14, 17. And he said, for the kingdom of his God is not eating and drinking. That's not what we're about primarily, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Another example of legalism would be forbidding people to marry. Um, Forbidding people to marry, implying that in every case, being single is more spiritual than being married. In the same list of things that Paul wrote to Timothy about, you know, he spoke uh, of those legalists who forbid others to marry. Uh, Another form of legalism is to declare that the Sabbath or Saturday or any particular day of the week is always the superior and only day where we can gather together and worship God like we're doing today romans 14 5 paul wrote to the church in rome saying one person esteems one day above another another esteems every day alike let each be fully convinced in his own mind he said we're free as christians to treat every day alike every day offers an opportunity for us to draw near to the lord to grow in our knowledge of the lord Every day is a day that we can worship God. Paul also wrote to the church at Colossae, Colossians 2, 16 and 17. And he said, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. The legalist seems to always want to address the area of how a person is to dress. You know, if they're to be truly spiritual, right? It's not enough for uh, you know people to stay within the bounds which God has set, which is to uh, dress modest modestly and simply. The legalist wants to define what modest looks like for you. They want to define what simple is. And it's not long before all of a sudden makeup is forbidden. And uh, then, you know, playing cards, that's got to be out. And then movies and certain instruments can only be used in the worship of church. And a whole lot of other things just get heaped up and piled on. The legalist wants to intrude into people's lives in areas that are meant to be left to the Holy Spirit. And when God lays down his commandment, he, he's willing to define it. And if it needs more definition in an individual's circumstance, then God will define it for that person. But the legalist will attempt to do the Holy Spirit's job for them. One of the problems with legalism is it tends to produce one of two kinds of people right? Neither is good in God's eyes. Primarily what legalism does is it turns people into uh, hypocrites. As Jesus de- declares in Luke, he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That was a single great sin of the Pharisees. So what is the relationship between legalism and hypocrisy? The Greek word translate hypocrite, as we've seen in the recent weeks, simply means to be an actor. You know, legalism turns people into actors. In the ancient world, an actor wore a mask. And a hypocrite is a person who gives this outward appearance of being one thing in this environment, and then gives, you know, the appearance of of being something totally different uh, in another environment. Religiously speaking, it's when a person gives the appearance of being spiritual in this environment, in, uh, you know, the church. Then when when you catch them, you know, uh, privately outside of the church, you know, they, they seem to be something completely different. You know, they've learned how to wear a mask in life. And the reason legalism turns into hypocrisy is that God has given us his Holy Spirit to empower us to be able to obey the commandments of God. But he's not given us the power of the Holy Spirit to obey the legalistic man-made rules and regulations that the religious men and women want to heap up on us right? So when they take the word of God way beyond what God intended it uh, to be, now I have to obey these man-made interpretations and rules in my own strength. And inevitably, people can't live up to these man-made standards that are placed on them. And, you know, they come to that realization, right? If a person fails to compare the teaching they've received with the word of God, the proven word of God, right? If they fail to compare the two and understand what God's heart is, what happens is they learn how to put on one face so they can be around God's people. While privately they know their life is a failure and they're not living up to the traditions and the rules that are placed upon them. And that leads to a life of uh, secrecy. And it leads to a life of duplicity. It leads to a life of hypocrisy. Now, if this life of legalism doesn't make a Christian uh, a hypocrite uh, out of a person, it makes the person proud or it makes them self-righteous. That's the other thing that it does. There is a certain kind of person who excels in a legalistic environment. Right? They like it the harder the better. Not everyone fails in that environment. Most people do, but there's a small group of people that excels in that kind of environment. And they're determined to succeed at all costs. Their attitude is, I'm gonna you know, outdo everyone else. And they do. And when they do, they begin to look down on those who don't do as well in that environment. They see themselves as more in love with God, more determined, you know, more serious about the things of God. And that's the temptation that comes upon those people and they're lifted up in pride. And Jesus gave a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector addressing this issue of pride. I mean, you remember the story the two men went up into the temple to pray and a Pharisee was one and the other was a tax collector. And, and Jesus said, the Pharisee stood there and prayed with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, you know, like extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. You know what? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But the tax collector, Jesus said, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he just beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said the, the Pharisee prayed with himself. I mean, it cracks me up every time I read it. I mean, praying to yourself is, is worthless. That prayer doesn't go any place right? Then Jesus said the tax collector, because he was being genuine, because he was humble regarding his condition, his prayers came up before God and he went home justified. And the lesson Jesus gave as a result of the story was everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Legalism is always a terrible thing, but at its worst, it's most dangerous when the legalist begins to tamper with God's plan of salvation. God has declared that salvation is a free gift of God. Salvation is extended to each of us as a free gift in his son. And God says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Jesus said in the most famous verse of the Bible, you guys can all quote it with me too. For God so loved the world he gave, right? Salvation is a gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, That Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Paul wrote to Titus, Titus 3, 5, saying, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, if any religious person comes along and teaches that we are saved by some good deed or by some religious act, or that some human effort is needed in order uh, to be saved, that person is to be rejected outright. We're not to give them the time of day. Anyone that comes along and says, a man or a woman can be saved or come into good graces with God through believing Jesus, and, and they list something else, you know what? that's tampering in an area that's very dangerous to those people that are sharing that message. But it's also very dangerous to the people that they're trying to influence with that message. Jesus supplied us with a finished work of salvation. Jesus cried out there on the cross. It is finished. Te telestai, paid in full. Nothing can be added to it. Certainly not worshiping on a Saturday, not by keeping dietary laws, not being circumcised, certainly not by keeping the Ten Commandments, or being baptized, or regularly attending a church. It's not Jesus and anything. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period, end of story. Now, on the other hand... You have a type of person in the world who doesn't know anything about the Bible. You know, maybe that person's even sat in church for many years and they still don't know anything about the Bible. And they think if you teach anything that's even, you know, the least bit uh, demanding from the Word of God, well, that's legalism. You know, they think Christianity is all cotton candy and lazy boys, you know, uh, cold drinks being brought to you on hot summer days, right? And they look at God and say, it doesn't matter what kind of life you live as long as you're sincere. You know what? As long as you're accepting of others. Just accept all religions. You know, as long as you, uh, you're loving in this life, because after all, God is a God of love. You know, and they think that's what Christianity is, but God addresses that person next as Jesus addresses the doctrine of the Sadducees. The doctrine of the Sadducees was polar opposite to the Pharisees. The doctrine of the Sadducees was liberalism. They were the, the liberal, um, you know, the theological liberals in Judaism uh, during this time. So if a legalist adds to the word of God, and he does, then a liberal is the one who takes away from the word of God, and he does. And this is widespread in our world today. They're both very present, I think. You know, both the, the, the legalist and the liberal. And it seems to me that liberal, liberalism, it's on the sharpest rise we've ever seen before in, in the history of our nation, I think. I don't know. The liberal way is to explain away, to minimize, to deny the clear teaching and commands of the Word of God, and there's several reasons the Sadducees will do this, and we have to be careful of them in our own lives. First, the Sadducee, both then and now, disregards and denies anything in the Bible that's supernatural. In Jesus' day, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection. You know, they questioned the idea of a life after this one. They questioned the idea of a soul. They questioned the idea of eternal punishment, right? They were the rationalist and the materialist, of their day, and if they could not explain something through natural laws, they just rejected it, right? If they couldn't see it, if they couldn't hear it, if they couldn't touch it, or, or uh, taste it, if they couldn't smell it, but most of all, if they couldn't understand it intellectually, they would just reject it outright. Now, you know, all of that sounds very intellectual, doesn't it? I mean, we see a lot of it in our day. But the fact of the matter is they were engaged in the worship of their own minds. They were worshiping their own intellect. They worship their own understanding. That's what a Sadducee does today. They make a God out of their own minds. And anything that doesn't fit into the confines of their own understanding, they simply reject it. And the problem with that is, in a relationship with God, God does not have our limitations, right? If you're going to have a relationship with God, with the real God, not the God uh, of your own making, the God in your mind, but the God of the Bible, the one true and living God, besides Him there is no other. If you're going to have a relationship with Him, you're going to have to get used to mystery, Because any time you have the finite, that's you and me, engaged in a relationship with the infinite, that's God Almighty, there's gonna be things you don't understand. You know, you're you're only gonna be able to track with God so far, right, on any given subject. We're to track with God as far as we can, but there comes a point where we need to uh, just trust him. As that truth extends on into eternity, right? A relationship with God involves mystery. Mystery is actually a wonderful thing, you know, in a relationship with God. No one should look at it and just, you know, say otherwise. It's something that's to be rejoiced in. If God was small enough for me to understand, He wouldn't be big enough for me to worship. If I can understand Him, If he fits within the confines of my understanding, then he's smaller than my mind. Therefore, he's less than me and uh, not worthy of my worship. Why would anyone bother worshiping something less than themselves? It doesn't make any sense. Jesus revealed the, the fatal flaw of the Sadducees, Matthew 22, verse 9. And he said to them, You are mistaken not knowing the scripture. And here's the, the main point, nor the power of God. In essence, he said to them, I know this is hard for you gentlemen to accept, but God is much more powerful than you. So don't place your limitations on him. They're gonna lead you into error if you do that. Secondly, a Sadducee feels perfectly free to disregard, to explain away, to take away from the Word of God, anything that displeases Him. They act as if the Bible is a book of suggestions instead of a book of commandments. They see it, uh, they see it that way because they actually think that they they're smarter than God Himself, right? And if they don't like what the Bible teaches, for instance, you know what the Bible teaches on biblical marriage, the, the role of a man and a woman in a biblical marriage, they just disregard it or attempt to explain it away. You know, if the Sadducee doesn't like what the Bible has to say about a divorce and remarriage, right, they'll either completely disregard it or attempt to explain it away. You know, if they don't like what the Bible has to say about homosexuality or heterosexual sin, uh, fornication or living together before marriage, they'll either completely disregard it or attempt to explain it away. And the same is true about abortion, and heaven, and hell. They either disregard it, or attempt to explain it away. Even the need to be born again, right? It doesn't matter to them that Jesus said a person must be born again to enter into the kingdom of heaven. They don't care who said it, you know? They don't believe in a spiritual birth. They don't see a person's need for it. So they just disregard it or attempt to explain it away. The problem with the Sadducee is that they're just full of themselves. And forgive me for my directness, but that's the truth of the matter. They're full of themselves, they're full of pride. And they lack a much needed fear of God. The third reason Sadducees are a group of religious people, um, you know, that. Their philosophy should be avoided. What they did was uh, they love the things of the world more than the things of God. You know what? They love power. They love prestige. They love money and the comforts that are afforded by it. They love pleasure. And they love the good things of this life. So when they came across any scripture that would get in their way of enjoying these worldly pleasures, they just read disregarded it or attempted to explain it away. Their reputation, a Sadducees reputation before the world is very important to them. They wanna be popular, everybody's friend. They wanna have some kind of relation to God while being accepted by the unsaved population around them. What the world thinks of a Sadducee is very important to them, right? It's more important to them than what God thinks of, of them. So they're very willing to cast away anything in the Bible that might label them as intolerant, narrow-minded, uneducated, or unenlightened. They're more than willing to throw out anything from the word of God that costs them in terms of material things, personal relationships, in terms of position, power, and reputation. So Sadducees, were the religious liberals of their day. Well, again, Mark 18, verse 15, Jesus also warned of the leaven of the Herodians. And the Herodians in Jesus' day were those who supported King Herod, or the lineage of Herod. Herod, and later on his offspring, they ruled in Israel under the oversight and the blessing of Rome. Herod, Uh, you know, the Herodians looked to Herod, to this Edomite family as the best hope for their problems that the Jews were facing at the times. So they were Jews who pinned their hopes for the future, not supremely on religion, not supremely on the word of God, but on the government, on politics and politicians. They looked to the government. They looked to men Man as an ultimate solution for their problems. You know, their view was, listen, Rome is real. Rome rules the world. So let's accept that as our reality. Let's try to gain some influence in the world by working with uh, the only one we know that's slightly even interested in our cause. Let's look to the only one we know in the system as our champion, mainly Herod and then his lineage. Now, Herod the Great considered himself the king of the Jews. He observed some of the Jewish laws. But most Jews knew that Herod and his lineage after him was more concerned with power than he was for the actual Jew. The Herodians thought, you know what? You have to take what you can get and just make the most of it. Okay, Herod's the best thing that we have. And we have to go wherever he's willing to take us. You know, if we don't jump on board, then we'll uh, just get left behind. So the Herodians were the combination of Jewish religion and politics. Probably the best way to describe the leaven of the Herodians would be bad politics right? For the Christian, the Bible teaches that there is good politics, and there is, okay? But there's also bad politics. There's good political involvement, and there's bad political involvement. Good political involvement, of course, includes things like voting and using anything God has given us as citizens of this nation to influence our nation for righteousness' sake, right? For what God defines as right is wrong in his word. Jesus said that we are to be salt and light in this world. We're to have a uh, preserving influence in this world, right? Good politics would include running for political office as the Lord leads, right? I'm thankful when Christians run for political office. And I'm even more thankful when they get voted in. And I'm even more thankful when they keep their heads about them in that mass of politics today. And they uh, remain true to the Lord and they don't compromise. So please, you know, don't misunderstand me in regards to this. Christians running for office in order to influence the world for God and righteousness, you know, and staying committed to that end That's a very good thing. That's a very good thing. Look at Joseph and Daniel in the Old Testament. I mean, they were two men that God raised up in the political arena next to kings, you know, put them in a position of influence in order to advance the purposes of God in those nations as well as, you know, in the uh, human history, God's people being involved and engaged is important, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing. In good politics, the Christian never pins their hopes on the government or a man as an ultimate solution for man's problems. In good politics, a person never thinks that the health and advancement of the kingdom of God is dependent upon a man or upon the government. In good politics, there's a recognition that as God gives us rights and opportunities in order to be an influence for righteousness in our city, you know, in our uh, state or in our nation, and when he leads, we should step out in faith and be that influence, knowing that we're working with God in it, right? That's good politics. Bad politics occur when a Christian views man or government as the ultimate solution for the problems we face. You know, that's the way the world sees it. That's the way the world thinks. But no Christian is to think that way. Bad politics is when when a Christian believes that a man or government is the ultimate solution for God's people. Right? Bad politics occur when we view the solution to the problem of our city, our state, our nation, or the world to be more political than spiritual. That's worldly thinking. That's bad politics. Bad politics occur when a Christian or a Christian church. Or Christians in a community or a nation become so identified with politics that they're identified more as a political movement than a spiritual influence in the world around them. That's bad politics. Now, you know what? I recognize that there's a segment of the world that would look at us as Christians and say any involvement that we have in the political arena is too much. You know, they look at us and say, look at them, All they're about is politics. You can't please any one of them. You know, I'm not talking about that person right now. But there is a line that that can be crossed when a person who has no bias or has no political agenda, when he looks and sees a Christian identify themselves in such a way, in their mind, without any effort at all, they genuinely become confused about whether Christianity is a spiritual kingdom, which is what Christianity is supposed to be all about, or whether it's something that's really more of a political voting block within a nation, right? In an attempt to maintain proper identification in the eyes of the world, it doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't be engaged, but it does mean that leaders within the church and Christians as individuals should take great efforts to explain to those people why this particular, particular issue is not just a political issue, but it's more of a moral, spiritual issue, right? And that's why we're engaged, because it's a moral because it's a political issue. So as people listen to us and watch us, they realize we're engaged because we're Christians. You know, that we're not just Christians involving ourselves in politics, but should, we should be able to be seen by those people for who and what we are as Christians. And that what God has called us to be in this world compels us to get involved in various political issues. We need to have that type of clarity so the world is not confused regarding us as they watch us from a distance. I think as Christians, we have to be careful, especially when it comes to the news and uh, talk radios. Uh, You know, listen, I have the radio on all the time in the car when I'm driving. I'm always listening to the radio. And I watch and I read a lot of news. But I do it as a member of God's kingdom, right? Nothing wrong with news or talk radio. But they can end up fashioning a believer more than the word of God if the believer's not given over to the word of God, right? And what happens is a Christian at work, at school, in the neighborhood, or at a family gathering, you know, you're the most zealous, the most agitated, the most on fire regarding the political thing that's happening. And people may not even know you're a Christian. They have never seen you so excited or worked up about anything regarding God uh, as you are regarding that political issue. You know, they've never seen you speak with such conviction regarding a single blessing in your life that Jesus has bestowed upon you as you are that political issue. They've never seen you so animated about one single thing found in the list of blessings recorded for us in Ephesians 1. And what happens? Our whole identity as Christians is viewed by people as being one that is primarily political and not spiritual. They don't see you as one who has engaged in political things at times because you're a spiritual person, right? It's a danger both to the church and to Christians as individuals. Bad politics will occur when a person attaches their wagon to a person as ungodly as Herod. They, They do it because they think that person has the power to get things done that they think need to get done But what they fail to realize is the damage that will be done to God's reputation when that uh, politician's dirty laundry gets aired out, and it's going to get aired out, especially today, right? Bad politics happens when a person forgets they're a citizen of heaven first and a citizen of this nation second. You might ask, well, how can we know or how can we tell when a person has it backwards? There's a really uh, simple way to tell, and it's all summed up in one word, compromise, right? Compromising uh, the word of God, compromising the teaching of the word of God. You know, that's what a Herodian does. A Herodian will compromise the standard of God's word over here in order to gain what he thinks is a greater good over there you know to them the ends justifies the means right they would say you have to do what you have to do if you want to get things done the problem is not only is god watching that compromise but the unsaved world that knows we're christians is watching that compromise too the world may be many things but they're not stupid You know, they know how to come to conclusions regarding what they see in other people's lives, right? And as they watch Christians compromise when it's expedient, they can't figure out how Christianity or Jesus is any different than anything else in the world. You know, they just see Christians compromising their convictions when they feel they need to in order to get ahead. And then they go right back to the stances that they previously held. God in his word from one end of the Bible to the other says, I don't need the help of your compromises. I don't need them in any way, shape, or form. I don't need compromise to accomplish, you know, my will in the world. Bad politics occurs when a person gets involved and they lose the quiet heart of faith in the middle of it all. They become very agitated, they become desperate, they become impatient, uh, they become uh, very aggressive. In other words, they become a person that no longer, longer looks like Jesus. They no longer represent the, na- the nature of Jesus. You know, they may be carrying the message of God into that arena, but they become like Jonah, failing to carry the nature of of God into that arena. And you realize as you look at their lives that there's something else that has become the master passion of their life. You know, there's something else on a day-to-day basis that is fashioning them into the person that they've become rather than being fashioned into the image of Christ through spending meaningful time with the Lord in his word and in his prayer on a Uh, in prayer on a daily basis, allowing him to make us more like uh, Jesus in the environment that he's placed us in. There are a lot of other things we could talk about related to all this, but suffice it to say that as Christians, we need to be active, as active as we can be in every way that he leads us to be active in, right? Right? but it must be done with uncompromising spirituality. It must be done with a great, an unmistakable clarity before the world regarding the spiritual side of the issue we're getting involved in. It needs to be communicated clearly to anyone who may be watching what's at stake in terms of righteousness before God. As And we must do it in a Christ-like manner. Otherwise, we find ourselves infected with the leaven of Herod in a compromising unity with the political system uh, of the world. And even worse yet, being identified primarily as part and parcel of that political system, you know, in the minds of those that are lost. It's vital that we don't do anything in this world that yokes Christ with what's corrupt or to represent ourselves as his ambassadors in such a way that causes people to think of us as Christians supremely as a political movement other than a spiritual one. So the leaven of the Pharisees is legalism. The leaven of the Sadducees is is liberalism. And the leaven of the Herodians is bad politics. Now you tell me, was Jesus wasting his breath 2,000 years ago or did he know what he was talking about? You know what? What Jesus says here in our passage, 2,000 years ago, is as important today as it ever was, if not more important. You look at the average person and how Christianity is represented to him. Again, I'm not talking about that guy who's looking for uh, any reason to refuse Christ, you know, to reject Christianity. I'm not talking about that guy that hates God's people. I'm talking about the average person. And you look at how hard it is for them trying to come in contact with Jesus trying to discover what Jesus is all about, trying to discover what the Bible really has to say. And you look at how often what it is that they're presented with, legalism, liberalism, people just explaining away the word of God. Or they look at the body of Christ and they see those that have crossed the line at that person, uh, you know, and that person who is genuinely seeking, genuinely seeking to know God, says to himself, well, I guess Christianity is really more of a political movement than anything else. I mean, that's what's really driving them. You know, that's really what's at their heart. And Jesus says to us, if any one of these things, God forbid if if any of these things, but Jesus would say to us, if any one of these things become what we're really all about, if these things are allowed into our lives, it will permeate our lives and it will completely corrupt what God has called us to do for his kingdom. Honestly, I think, you know, this is just a timely exhortation for us as Christians, you know, in light of the world in which we're living in today. A timely exhortation for us as a church but also for us as individuals. We want people to look at us and see Jesus. And that's our desire. That's our goal. We want them to see us as different in this world. I want them to see a difference in each one of us. We want to uh, to be an influence in their lives that will lead them to the one true and living God that will lead them to faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation. We want them to see what produces a life like ours. And by the grace of God, you know what? We're not perfect. I'm not perfect, man. I am a sinner. I need help. I need your prayers, just like you need mine. We're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but we're growing. We're growing. But we want them to see what produces a life like ours is being born again by the Holy Spirit and beginning a very real personal relationship with God and then quietly and powerfully living a simple life of obedience to his word and to his calling upon our lives. That's what is to be represented supremely through this church and through our lives as individual Christians in this world let's pray Father we just thank you Lord for your word we thank you for the insights of your word Lord we thank you for the warnings within your word Lord without the warnings we'd have no idea we would just be led every which way Lord but with the warnings, we can stay on point and we can be on track. Lord, guard our hearts from ever allowing any of these things to enter into our life and draw us away from a simple relationship with Christ. Placing our faith in him, learning about him, growing in our knowledge of him. Lord, in just being a light to this world. Let your word, and I pray this timely exhortation, Lord, have um, way in our hearts today and create in us the men and women you want us to be, Jesus. We ask these things in your name.